Um, welcome to class. I'm going to spend the first five minutes or so recapping, and then we're going to jump on into uh, some more text for the day. Anybody here for the first time for this month? You guys are awesome. Way to dive on in right at the end. Um, so pay attention really hard and close to this recap. The rest of you guys can go get more coffee if you want it. But um, So we've been asking a number of questions which have led to a number of answers. Uh, number one is, why study how to read the Bible? And the answer for that is generally because the Bible is written in an intentional, uh, structural manner that if we do not know how we should read it, rules for what questions to ask, what meaning to look for, then we're going to miss what it's trying to say. Um, This flows down into where is meaning found. Uh, Are we looking for meaning in the author, in the text, or in myself? Am I the dictator of meaning? Um, generally the decision amongst, especially I think the Christian evangelical circles, because we see that I'm not the ultimate end to meaning in life, um, but it's really God. So one, it's not myself, because then I'm twisting and perverting potentially the original meaning, and it means whatever I want it to, and therefore um, it's so transient and not a solid foundation to really understand, does this have a singular meaning? Now there are some artists who say, well, it's, I really made it to mean whatever you want it to mean. And that's kind of like the Warshak test, or if you ever talk to Jared Anderson and listen to some of his music, he will ask that question, well, what does it mean to you? Well, okay, I see what you're saying there, and you're trying to open up my mind. I like your Freudian you know, sleight of hand there. But um, when it comes to the scriptures, what we're really saying is that the author, not just even the text, but the author had an original meaning and an intent in mind for writing whatever they were writing. I will even go as far as to say our Old Testament um, is not history. They're not writing it just to record a basic history of the people. Even if that's what's happening within what they're writing, they're still writing it with certain themes, with a certain reason, really with a certain motive behind why are they writing. They weren't just historians trying to give the most accurate accounts to what happened. They're saying, okay, this is what happened, so how can I construct it to present a message to a certain people, an audience, um, any of that. So meaning is found in the author. We're studying it so that we can have a, um, an agreed upon kind of meaning within that. Uh, a certain number of questions to ask when reading. Um, questions like, who is the author? When is he writing? Where is he writing from? To whom is he writing? And some, when we get this, the, the cultural context that this is an actual person at an actual time writing, it can help us answer the question, so why is he doing this? What is this whole story about? Or what is the motive behind why he's writing? And that can give us an idea, even in the midst of a bigger story of this is where he's coming from. And this is most likely there's a centralized theme to what they're writing. So it's going to come back to that. Um, I don't, if you have any of the epic movies of our age or the ages past, uh, you'll see whether it's Braveheart or Lord of the Rings, even, dare I say it, Glenn's personal favorite right now, Harry Potter. That... <laughs> Have you guys read Harry Potter? Have you seen it? This is, this is, this is a great conversation to have, especially if you're looking at Harry Potter, because um, you can get into the details of like, well, it's witchcraft. Well, that's bad, or that's okay. And, but really, they're using the idea of sorcery to present a story. And if you look past the kind of how it's being told into why it's being told and what is the message coming across, um, does, does Harry Potter have a central message or theme is there a, a type of story that's being encompassed within this story about Harry? What would you guys say to that question? Yeah. Yes. Okay. What, what is that story? Love is the highest magic. Is the highest magic. That's so good. It's, it's so good. Are there, any, um, are there any parallels between maybe that story and the faith to which we hold? 
Could you, could, are there any parallels between the Harry Potter story, Love is the Ultimate, and the faith to which we hold? Like, is she coming from something of a Judeo-Christian mindset as far as like, what is the ultimate and then how is that paralleled in my story? I won't give you... Uh, have you guys read it? Who, who's intending to read it but has not? Because this, this is not the spoiler then. Great. Book seven, it'll ruin the entire thing for you because you'll really see, like, actually, sorcery may not be so bad because in this story, the sorcerer is, like, really the Christ figure. Like, this is actually a really good story. And so they're... Uh, to, uh, not Tolkien, who... Um, Roland. She's telling a story through something else. It's just the means, like the text, like we're looking at here, is in an author text or either. The text is just a mode, it's a capsule by which to present a message or a meaning. And we can do that through novel or story or poetry. Um, in the New Testament, we get to discourse, which is just the letters of Paul he's, or John or Hebrews or whomever else is writing. So, um, so we looked at questions to ask, so we're getting the cultural context. And then uh, last week, we went through plotting a narrative. Um, two-thirds of your Bible is narrative. It might even be more than that. It's probably somewhere around two-thirds. Um, so within the scripture, I'll flip to this next slide so you guys can see. Um, there's types, genres, and forms, order, structures, and plots, parallels, motifs, and themes. We've been looking at the first sets of those. We're going to look at the last one, themes, today. Um, but when we're talking about type, just to recap so you guys are coming up to speed with us, um, a type in literature can be anything. Anything that's written is literature. That's a very easy um, you know, literature for dummies answer. And if it's written, then it's a certain type how it's presented. So it can be presented as like a pamphlet, as a book, as a magazine, um, as your onboard safety instruction. That's all literature, and it's a certain type. In the scriptures, we have three types of literature. Do you guys remember what those three types are? Anyone? Three types of literature within scripture. Wisdom is a, is a genre. So you're getting into like, how does it work out? Um, I'll, I'll give you the first. Narrative is a type. So narrative being straight, just a story. So most of your Old Testament, your Gospels, uh, looking at the book of Revelation, it's all just story. It's narrative. Poetry is your next type. Uh, if you guys want to cheat in your, in your Bibles, um, there's columns, usually two columns per page. And if the text goes coast to coast, like there's this is just a straight column, that's usually narrative, unless you're in one of Paul's letters or in one of the epistles, then it's discourse. Um, but if it's indented and it's all like centered and indented, it's poetry. The translators have already done the work for you. You can just look at it and go, this is Hebrew poetry right now. I should be reading it a little bit different than straight story, even if the poetry is in the midst of the story. And then the last one, I gave it away, straight up discourse. So it's letter writing. Um, uh, Daniel Henry is down here in the front. He said last week that one of his professors basically describes it as other people's stories, poems, and mail that we happen to be reading, which is so true. Like that's exactly what's going on. They're not... I'm, I can't say this definitively, but I would assume that they do not write thinking, I am writing scripture right now. Um, they are writing inspired by God, and then it is kind of recognized by the whole to be um, you know, without fault in its intent and true and inspired. And so therefore, we have canonized it and, and called it scripture. So we're looking at narrative, which is basically what we're reading. Um, last week we looked at order and structure. If you have a narrative, if you have a story, it's got classic kind of narrative structure to it. Um, we talked about four things last week that any good story has. Does anyone remember those four things that are included in story? Characters. Good job. Characters is the first one. Well done. So every story has certain characters. And then there is setting. Well done. All of your English classes are coming back and haunting you right now. 
Characters, setting, anyone else? Plot, perfect. And the last one, any guesses? Any wild guesses out there? Theme. Maybe tone, but tone's really how it's being written. But character, setting, plot, and theme. And the Bible is no different. We, it is sacred. It is sacred literature. It is, it is sacred writings that we hold. But it's still story. So it still has characters in it. It still has plot in it. It still has settings for where these things are taking place. And all of those things are going to present certain themes with, with what they're saying and how they're saying it. Um, so as we've gone on to, uh, this is just another key little help. If you're looking at plot, character, settings, and themes, a way to understand the core message of what they're saying, um, it's, it's one of those little tricks of the trade, is to look at repeated words. Um, my general example is the State of the Union Address, which I know that we all watch religiously every year, I am sure. Right? No? Great. Did you guys know Lincoln started the State of the Union Address? It makes me happy. During the Civil War, he wanted to give the State of the Union. It's been tradition since then. But afterwards, if you watch the State of the Union Address, they count the words to tell you they repeated this word you know, 17 times, and so generally he's trying to get across this message. With Bush, it was always like freedom and you know, whatever it was. With Obama, it's a lot of times uh, like the economy or I don't know what else. But generally there's themes which in the State of the Union. We've been specifically looking at the book of Jonah. Uh, and so if you look at Jonah, I broke it down into the entire book in chapter 1. Um, if you, one of the things we did last week too was we plotted out where the breaks happen. Um, wonderfully, our English Bibles, they, uh, they have chapters and verses which are really references, but not always story break. It's not necessarily lining up with where the stories actually um, take a turn in, in their, their narratives. And so if you take those out, and we mapped it last week that there's anywhere between five and seven actual sections where if, it, if you're thinking of it like a movie, it changes scenes. Um, and they don't always line up with the chapter breaks. Those were added about 1500s when they came out with the Gutenberg Press and were able to mass-produce Bibles so that you needed more and by need of where a specific reference was because it was getting out to the people as a whole, which was great. So um, if you look at the breakdown, and that's what I'm just saying towards chapter one, the entire book, you can look at that list on the left and kind of think, generally, this is probably what Jonah's about. You cannot even read the book of Jonah and say, well, it's about the Lord and God, depending how we're looking at that, which we talked about last week. It's about Jonah. The sea is somehow very important. Nineveh is important. It's a city in some way. Uh, and then adjectives like great and evil and exceedingly and angry, uh, and then life in there too. So just looking at repeated words, um, you can take the time. In school, they would make us hand map out where all of the repeated words were, which was tedious and a pain in the butt. Um, we have these wonderful technologies these days called computers and the Google. And you can literally, if there's like websites that are word counter websites, and you can copy and paste an entire book into these word counter websites, and it'll tell you these are the repeated words. So if you happen to actually be here because you're like, I love learning to study the Bible, and I'm going to do it on my own, that's a little tip, that you could take it, and you can break it up into the full book, and then you can just copy and paste chapters in there and say, this is generally what they're talking about, so this is an overarching idea of what's going on. Uh, last week, we broke up a little bit of... Um, how do I want to say this? We broke up the, the plot, kind of, these are the plot points. There's an intro, there's the first chapter, or kind of first scene, second scene, third scene, and we went into all of that. If you weren't here, I'm not going to recap all of it, because it'll take a long time, but um, all of that fits into classic narrative breakdown like this as well. Anyone else's English class is coming back to them right now? 
Don't you love this point? Did you guys ever have to do sentence diagramming and story mapping and all that stuff? Oh, it's so fun. Um, and it's fun to me because you hopefully, in, in high school, I don't know if we were that far advanced in our, our thinking, but hopefully today we can get to the point where we can say, when we do this, this is really what the story's about. And that's what's exciting, to, at least to me. So it starts with rising action. Something happens in this story. Our rising action is basically the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and then he runs away. That's great. That's also our point of conflict, that the prophet of God is running away from uh, obedience to God. Um, it has rising action. It somehow gets to some sort of climactic point. There is falling action in some way, which leads us to a finalized resolution. Um, this is a high-level point in the story. What I want you guys to do, just to start off the book, if you were here last week, you have a little bit of, we've been looking at it some more. But see if on a broad, generalized basis, you can do this with the story of Jonah. So you're going to have about five-ish minutes, two or three of you in a group. See if you can point and figure out, because this is a narrative. The Bible is written as story. Jonah is no different. This, thankfully, is a short narrative, which takes up two pages. If you didn't bring your Bibles, I printed off some sheets of Jonah in the, in the back. Literally, it's one page front and back. That's how short this story is. So hopefully, as we're looking at plot and all that, we can also see the breakdown of the classic, this is a story, and this is how it all works out. So, um, so take this, break up into groups of two or three, take about five-ish minutes, and see if you can figure out, these are the points of rising action, this is the point of conflict. Like, can you specifically name them? This is the rising action, this is the conflict, this is the climactic point. This is the falling action. This is the resolution. Okay? Ready, go. All right, I'm going to interject here. How's it going? Is your high school skills coming back? Your knowledge of Jonah, is it being applied? Good. We're going to plow into this just because there's some really cool stuff that we need to get to in the next 20, 35 minutes or so. Um, If you guys were to say rising action and conflict, this is like the zoomed out view, which... I have to say we can't understate how important it is to zoom out and see a structure of a book um, because sometimes we get so bogged in the details. If you're reading a longer book like Isaiah or Genesis or something that's a longer narrative, like you can get really bogged down in, in the little details of it. So backing up hopefully will help us see a little bit more of this is what the story is really about. So if you were to say, because last week we were talking about characters, themes, all that stuff, plot, casting that out. If we're looking at the classic structure, what is the rising action and the conflict that happens within Jonah? Did you guys come up with anything? A sentence or two, perhaps? Jonah was called, and Jonah ran away. Like, that is, if there's ever a tension point of conflict, is that not it? Like, Jonah, go ahead. And I'm, I'm always surprised at Jonah, because he, he's such a butt, and... What the Lord tells them to do is, like, their evil has come up before me. Go and throw down. And it's one of those, like, why are you... I mean, you get to it later, but... it's one. Of, he's not telling you, you to, like, go be nice to them. He's telling you to kind of go preach against them. So why did you, why did you run? Anyway, so, rising action conflict. Um, so the conflict includes that whole strip is the rising action. So the rest of the rising action includes things like the sailors things like the fish, all of that. Um, did you guys get to a climactic point? Can you, can you and yourselves think, like, this is the climactic point of Jonah? Hmm? The poem? Explain. Why would that be the climax? Well, it's kind of where everything kind of comes together. You go to one of those sides. 
Okay. So the poem. Good. Anyone else? I kind of agree with that. I'd say right before the poem. Right before the poem? Okay. There are multiple climaxes in this story. Yeah. Yeah. There's no going back because he got eaten by a whale. <laughs> and everything is therefore out of his control. <laughs> what do I do with this? Okay, any other assertions? The climactic point of the story? I mean, there are multiple climactic points of the story, depending who you're looking at it through his lenses and stuff. So. Anyone else? Okay, we'll keep going on. Um, any points of falling action resolution? Who has resolution in this story? I'm, like, I'm really just doing you guys such a disservice right now because it's just going to lead into this next question of Jonah is such a weird book that doesn't really follow a straight plot line like this because it's split up into so many different main characters, kind of, and it's really like a first section and a second section and the word of the Lord comes to him twice. Like, it's split in half like that. And so, were you guys talking about that? Are those, are those the smug looks back there? Like, yeah, we get that. We know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, we knew we couldn't do this. It was a trick question the whole time. It's true. Like, a, a standard narrative, like, would follow something like this. There'd be maybe multiple story plots that go into it, but, like, a unified sort of story. The question is, can we do that with Jonah? The answer is it's really, really difficult because there's so many actions that happen. What's going to help us, and this is the next part of it, is looking at character development for all of the, uh, the different characters. And you have this on your sheet, and I want you to utilize it. Um, last week we talked about three sets of characters. Um, anyone remember all of the characters in the book of Jonah? Anyone name them off? There's up to five, as few as three. God is like the main character. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. So first two characters in the first line right there, introduction. And then... The Ninevites and the sailors, and you could throw in the king and the captain, um, but generally let's keep the king with the Ninevites and the, the captain with the sailors. Um, there was also argument about the worm and the whale and the plant that grows up and then dies very quickly. Um, I associate those with plot, but there can be made an argument that like, they're characters in one sense. So... Just focusing on, I will say, the more main characters and best supporting actors, um, what I want you guys to do is look at actual character development. And with this question in mind, where do they start, what happens in the story to them, and then where do they end? What is the beginning, the middle, and the end, kind of this, uh, the plot thing for those characters? Is for, for Jonah, is there a point of conflict, a climax in that, and then does he have resolution? For the sailors, is there a point of conflict, rising action, climax? Do they have resolution? For the Ninevites, is there a point of conflict, 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 climax? And do they have resolution? So all three of those things, let's see if we can figure out the story plot of Jonah through the character development of Jonah. Because um, it, it really helps in this story. It truly does. So this is, again, group work, five minutes, ready, go. Real quick, are you guys through at least two of the three yet? Do you guys have 
the sailors down? They're pretty short. Got the sailors. Are we working on the Ninevites? Is that where we're at? Okay. Keep working on the Ninevites. Anybody done with Jonah yet? Okay. We'll keep working then because we need to get to Jonah. All right, we're going to jump in here. Uh, my apologies for time's sake. I mean, I could keep you over all the way until the 11 o'clock service if you want, but I don't want to be that guy. So jumping in, and you can keep talking amongst yourselves. I don't totally mind that if you're like nailing down the last points. The character development, according to this sort of plot, for the sailors and the captain, if you kind of combine them all into one thing, where is their beginning point, like introduction, conflict, re- like climax, resolution for the sailors? I want, to, I want to ask the back of the room, because you guys are all back row sitters. I'm going to call on you. You thought you were away from my evil eye, but no. I see y'all. Given Jonah a ride, that's like the introduction of, okay, they get brought into this story, not necessarily on their own will, but just because they're tradesmen. And sure, yeah, you're going to pay us some money, and we'll give you a ride. So that's really where we get the introduction. Where's the conflict arise for the sailors? This one's pretty obvious. Hopefully, <laughs> the storm, right? So they don't really know who they've brought on board, and they even say that. They just keep on praying out to their own gods. They can't really figure it out. Um, and this crazy, wicked storm arises, which we see that same storm arise a couple times in the New Testament. Jonah's below board sleeping. There's climax for these sailors. Like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? What is their falling action and resolution then? So if that's the climactic point of like, what's the storm? How do they resolve what the storm is? And what is their response to that? So some of the, so part of the climactic point is like to chuck them overboard, right? Like, oh my gosh, a storm. Oh, we're in chaos. Oh, the storm's better. Okay, so that's our falling action point. And then what's the resolution? Anyone? It's like the last line. It's like verse 16 or, or something like that, 17. They turn to the Lord, right? If that's not the coolest resolution ever. So we're randomly introduced to these people. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, kind of bait the hook a little bit. Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles. Traditionally, Gentiles. You can argue, but it doesn't tell us necessarily that they're Jews. I mean, where they're in, yeah. Okay. Let's get there when we get there. Because they are, like, where um, Joppa is is kind of like where the Israelites could have been, but because of exile and stuff like that. So it's not really hardcore that these are Jews, Gentiles. Maybe leaning a little bit Gentiles, though. Because they're, they're taken on board and they're not calling out to God. Um, that's not their first thing. It's Jonah who kind of introduces him to Yahweh God. So don't know God, rising action, storm, throw him overboard, resolution, fearing God. And they feared and worshipped him, right? As far as the story plot goes, pretty good. I like it. Ninevites. Let's map them out. Who are these people? How do we, try, how do, how do we plot them out in this story of Jonah? You guys are all, you're on top of this one. You had like 10 minutes. Was that not long enough? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll assign homework next time. You can do this at your own houses and bring back your, your, your final solutions. A huge city. Ninevites, a huge city. Um, yeah. 
takes three days to walk across it. Man, that must be one big city. You know, if you, if you walk a standard pace for eight, we, we mapped this out a couple weeks ago. If you walked eight hours a day, it's so like a working day, um, however many miles that you would cover, you would get from Colorado Springs to North Denver. So that's what they're saying how big the city is. Is that hyperbole? I don't know. But that's a big city, regardless. Um, maybe that includes some farms and stuff, too. I don't know. So we're introduced to these people. Um, the very first chapter is when we get introduced to them. And what are they introduced as? Like, what, are, what is the, the note that the Lord makes about them? Go to them because... Preach against them because... Their evil has come up before me. What a great introduction. They're a great city... And they're a great evil city. Like, it's risen up before me. Go preach against them. So that's all we know. We lose track because Jonah goes elsewhere. He gets spit up at the end of chapter 2, right? And then we get reintroduced to them again. Okay, so if that's the rising action, what's the point of conflict for the Ninevites? Yeah, what does Jonah say at the beginning of chapter 3? Take a peek. I mean, I would feel as though I would have some conflict if a prophet of God came and told me this. Forty days. I don't know if I can say this on tape. You're all, whatever, fill in the blank. Um, that's what's going to happen. Like, if that's not a point of conflict, like, we're introduced to them as evil. That's the kind of rising action. Jonah finally gets to them. The conflict, he finally preaches. He gets a day into the city he's supposed to go into. Preaches out against it. So that's the conflict. The rising action, uh, it's generally kind of summarized in there. Um, I don't know, I feel like the, the town of Nineveh, the town, the great city of Nineveh, is like a giant telephone game at that point, right? Because, like, we're introduced to the conflict, and it's just they pass it on person to person somehow, right? So what's the, uh, what's the climactic point in this story for the Ninevites? Hmm? So it comes to the king. What's the king's, like, what's his response? Jason, were you saying it back there too? Repentance, right. Like, if we're tracking their story, really, you're evil. The conflicting point is they finally get told that they're evil directly, so they're in this tension. This telephone game goes up to this point to where that king actually hears about it. Um... And then it's this, okay, so kind of what the king is going to do, what the people are going to do. But all of their response is, repent. All right, sackcloth, ashes. Let's see. And what is, what is their response? What's their direct line that they say, like, if we do this, then maybe. Yeah, who knows that God might turn and relent. Like, great. It's almost this, like, let's just try. Like, we don't really know this God anyways, but let's try. And then if you want to really know their resolution, it's really that they're forgiven because Jonah goes outside of the city and just stares at them the whole time, like super ticked off about the whole matter, going, I knew you'd do this, God. I knew if I told them they were evil, then you're a God of mercy and they'll repent. So if, we're, if we wanted to plot it out cleanly, evil people told that they're going to die. The word gets around the city all the way to the king. They repent and God doesn't destroy them. Perfect. So the plot line with the sailors, we don't know if they're evil or not. They just happen to be thrown in the story. Storm arises. They repent. The storm stops. Storyline with the Ninevites. Jonah comes, tells them they're evil. They turn. They repent. Figurative storm stops. They don't get destroyed. How about our, how about our good friend Jonah? 
the good Jew that he is. How about him? What's his storyline? Who's Jonah? What do we know about him? Character introduction. Prophet of God. Who, who is the prophet of God? Like, give me some characteristics of what the prophet of God is, who he is. Huh? They hear from God. They speak God's word. Yeah, they bring correction. Whatever the prophecy might be, they're the ones who say it. And that day, there wouldn't have just been one prophet. There would have been many prophets in the land. I mean, the only time that we kind of have one prophet is back at Samuel, when there wasn't many words that day. But since Samuel, you just see prophets in the, in the land of Israel just rising up. It's really great. So we can somewhat assume the same, especially if we're looking at them in the context of the minor prophets, that there's all these other people around prophesying. We're just not told about the rest of them, which is okay. So there's a prophet of God who's supposed to be the one who hears the word, who does the word, whatever. That's who we're introduced to. And the first thing that the prophet of God does... Mm, I don't know if that's our, confli- our conflict right there, if that's conflicting action, but it's at least a conflicting idea for the prophet of God. Like, if there is some sort of internal conflict that he is not obeying or something's going on within maybe his own heart, as supposed by his actions, that's what's going on in the story. Do we have a climax or multiple climaxes for Jonah? Oh, yeah, okay. I mean, if you're thinking about it, rising action... I'm running away, then I get into a storm, I'm thrown overboard, there's a whale, it eats me, I get spewed up on ground. So it's almost like this, ooh, okay, we've solved that one. There's some resolution from the whole getting eaten by a whale storyline. But then we kind of, round two, ready, fight, ding, 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 ding. He goes into the city, and this time, does he do what he's supposed to? Kind of. It's like... Okay, so we're, we're, we're like again thrown into this idea of some sort of degree of conflict going on here because he's basically going to the city and preach this word he kind of does he kind of tells them 40 days you're going to get your butts kicked and so then what's what are his actions what if, is there a climax in that second part standing on the cliff arguing with god anyone else like can you just see jonah doing this he's the prophet of the lord he's been spewed up by a fish already in this story he goes and he finally preaches and he's like oh they repented I'm going to go over here, even though they've already repented and the Lord's already relented, he's already admitted to that, just to continually see that maybe the Lord will turn his mind and really burn them all up or something, and he's having this thing, and then this plant grows, and he's really happy, and then the sun and the worm, they kill it, and he's really ticked off again, and he's so mad that he could die. It would be better for me if I died right now, Lord. And does he come to a point at that of resolution? Man, talk about a cliffhanger, right? Okay, we're going to get to this point now. If that is the plot line of Jonah, we have these characters. Okay, Ninevites, again, Jews or Gentiles? Straight up Gentiles. There, there cannot be argument that they are not Gentiles. And not only are they Gentiles, they are the enemies of the Jews. They're the ones that took them and Judah into exile. This is the capital city of the evil people who have, like, violated us and killed us and murdered us and all these things. So if we're looking at that, no, we're going to skip across all these. No, okay. (laughs) Themes, messages, if this is the story, if we're looking at it as story written by a Jew to the Jews about a Jew who's kind of the main character and God and there's these Gentiles in the midst of it and we've just plotted out their 
stories, actions, resolutions, repentance, repentance, and then Jonah's. Why did the author of Jonah, what, what is, why did he write it? What is it about? Can we, can we deduce from all of these things, like, why did this guy write this story to the Jews? And what prophecy? If prophecy is not this, in the end times, the Lord is going to do this, but this is the way of the Lord, and let me tell you, it, it can be correction, it can just be insight. It can be future events that are going to happen. But it's just, this is the way of the Lord. Which is really why, if you get into Revelation, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Is not Jesus the way of the Lord? I am the way and the truth of life. So if, if prophecy is the way of the Lord, and we're looking at Jonah as a prophetic story, what is this story trying to tell us? What is the meaning or the message? What is the correction or the warning? What is Jonah all about? Grace. How? Mm hmm. Uh huh. Come on. So if we were looking at a theme of Jonah, a strong theme in the whole thing is grace. If you repent, God is gracious. Even if you don't, God is still kind of gracious. Mm. Mm. Okay, this is so good because you're tracking with it right now. Okay, if we were looking at Jonah and the prodigal son, Jonah and uh, any of those New Testament parables, what is the prodigal son's story about? Who is the older brother? What is Jesus trying to warn them or correct them? Or what is the, what is the message? Who is the older brother? And I want you to think about it this way. Can a character represent something more? Can they, can they act as a parallel? Can they act as a type of something and if so, in the prodigal son and in the story of Jonah, who is that character? God's people. Boom! So look at, okay, if we're paralleling it like that, the word of the Lord is coming to God's people, the people who have the word, the people who are supposed to do what God has told them to do. Like, isn't that the Jewish story through and through? And then you start reading the rest of Jonah in light of that, and you're going, oh my gosh, what is Jonah about? Okay, if you guys aren't there yet, Someone else in this class might be able to summarize this entire thing right now. Um, This is so good. Anyone else? I'm going to, I'm going to, okay, go for it. Okay, hold on. This is so good. Are you guys hearing this in the back corner? Talk up really loud because this is so good. Saw a lot of that in Acts, where 
hey, you know, we're the people of God because we're the Jews. And God's original plan was for everybody, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And the story is saying that, you know, the Gentiles, not only is my word for the Gentiles, but they're repenting and you're not. Mm. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yes! Through and through, the history of God, was it first for the Jews or was it for Abraham, the man of faith? It, it, Galatians. I love Galatians because he's going back and forth between them, like kind of the spirit of law, the spirit of faith and stuff. And he, he throws it out there. It's like, Abraham is the father of, our, of the faith, of the people of God, because of faith. Because we are people not who are, well, we're the Jews, so look at we're the chosen ones. That might translate a little bit today. We're the Christians. We're the chosen ones. But because we're the people of faith. We're the people who repent. Okay, okay. You guys are nailing this. With all of this in mind, we're taking, we're figuring it out. Going, okay, God is telling us something in a story. And he's using characters and plot and themes and settings and motifs. And there is so much more that we can go into Jonah about. Even though it's only four chapters. But with all this in mind, we're starting to see and we're figuring out. Is this about... He's having a word of correction to the Jews and he's juxtaposing it with the Gentiles and the responses. Because where is Jonah's heart when he ends the chapter? It's hard. There's no resolution with Jonah because Jonah doesn't change from the beginning to the end. He changes his actions, sure, but God is continually correcting. Yes, you do the, white, you do the right things, you whitewashed tombs, but inside you're dead. Okay? Check this out. This is where it gets really exciting. So we're starting to understand it. Melchizedek, I can explain that other sometime. Sign of Jonah. We get to Jesus, right? Two Gospels, he says this story. And it's quite a lengthy thing, which is really, really cool. Matthew and Luke. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees. Hmm, interesting moment right there. Some of the scribes and Pharisees. And then the crowds. Difference between Matthew and Luke. Who is Matthew writing to? The Jews. How do we know that? Chapter 1, big old genealogy. If he was trying to win over a bunch of Gentiles or Romans or Greeks, he wouldn't really, they wouldn't really care about the Jew, Jewish genealogies. He's writing to these Jews. He's writing to this Jewish audience. So he's highlighting this. I'm writing this to the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm setting up this kind of type of the religious perfect within this way. Okay, this one, crowds, Luke is generally writing to Greek audience. Gentiles, Greek audience. Okay. Some of the scribes, Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it to accept the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Luke, very similar account. There's some minor differences in there, mainly because of audience. If we're looking at this, and Jesus is saying to us, guys, this is the sign of Jonah. What? (laughs) What is the sign of Jonah? And can we understand it better because of the story that we just looked at. Any thoughts? What is the sign of Jonah? What could the sign of Jonah could be? What could it be? What is the sign that Jesus is giving him? Hmm? The resurrection. Three days and three nights. That part is obviously clear. You're going to die. I'm going to be in the grave three days. I'm going to rise again. Responding to God's love. Whom? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Why, why did the Ninevites get to judge? Because they got saved. They repented at the end of it. Like, right? Like, okay. Mm hmm. Mm. Yeah, they, yeah, the population of Nineveh, biblically, you never get the whole. You always get a picture. So that could be the ones who were evil, the ones who, maybe that was just men. Yeah, what did Jonah preach correctly? He told them he was, they're all going to die. Like, if that's not the best, I mean, Billy Graham, what you got? You got nothing versus this guy. Whole city repented, and he just told them that they were going to die. It's it's incredible. We're going to get to this as the last thing where in the first week, if you guys were here, I presented Bible study methods as seeing, understanding, sharing, and responding. There's four kind of steps in really reading and understanding the Bible. The seeing and understanding part is what we've been doing for the last three weeks. What does the text say and how can I actually understand it? We've been doing it in the midst of sharing. That's basically this. Don't read it in isolation. Read it together. Read it online articles. Like don't isolate ourselves because the Bible is not meant to be a just me and God. Those are good to soak up the word and have Lecto Divino time and all of that. There's spiritual refreshment and life that comes from that. But on the whole, let it not stay there. And so if we're seeing and understanding and getting to this point right now, we're wrapping up understanding, at the question, the final question then comes, okay, how then do we respond? But let's stick on the, let's stick on the understanding part here, like the sign of Jonah. What is it? Come on, keep going. I love it. Jonah's a warning sign to the Jews.
Did you guys all catch that? Does that make sense with what the story says and then what Jesus is saying here? That the gospel came to the Jews, they repented. That's a warning sign. It's this warning. Can can we be, the story itself, if we go back to Jonah, why does Jonah's story not get completed? Why is it left kind of in this tension where there's no climax resolution part of the story? And I think it's because so much of that, you're supposed to be left with this tension of like, guys, this is a warning. Don't be Jonah. Don't be this person who is the whitewashed tomb, who is, we, well, we're the people of God. Well, I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew of Jews. Look at me. Yet you don't respond to the revelation in a repentant way. And so if we see three days and three nights, and then in that day, the queen of the south, the Ninevites will rise in judgment. Say it again. Who, who is it? Who do, who do those people parallel? Yes, the Gentiles, the Gentiles, yes. The Gentiles are part of the salvation story. Why? Because it's not about being a Jew. It's about the heart. It's about responding to the word of God, the revelation of God. It's about repenting and having a heart that softens to him. The Gentiles do it in the story, but the Jews, if Jonah is the representation, they stay hardened. And if Jesus is bringing it back up, you know the sign that I'm going to give you, you Pharisees, you teachers of the law? So I'm going to die. And when I rise, you're going to see the message preached and the Gentiles repent and then become part of this gospel story too. Is this the sign of Jonah? Like, to me, when we read this as story and we go, oh my gosh, the story is amazing. And then we see it through Jesus' lenses and what he's warning about and what the sign of Jonah is. To me, it is so cool. If we keep tracking this and the word of God is living and active, is there also a warning for us in the midst of the sign of Jonah? How do we then, if we are seeing and understanding, if we are sharing it, how then do we respond? How do we take on the same message for our time, for our context, for our lives, for being old? We're the Christians. We're New Life Downtown, guys. Didn't you know that? We're the, we're the it. We're the it group. Have you heard Glenn? He's amazing. How do we take on such a story as this in our own lives? To take the message behind it and walk it out. Oh, the movie Noah? Okay, yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. Come on. Yeah. 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 We we Yeah. We don't know how far. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I I got to wrap this up because the baptism class is coming in next, which I totally forgot about until Joey just popped in the door. If we're understanding the story, if we're understanding the type, all of that, and then we're starting to see the parallels of what story can do. Story can be greater than Jonah, but he can represent the people of God. It could be greater than a sailor and a Ninevite. They can represent the Gentiles of God. We can track it in and we can see this message that is huge and we get to be incorporated because we're the Gentiles who are part of the story. But is the warning still, and now you Gentiles who have been included in the message, don't become the same because you're just the people of God that your hearts are far from me. Like, is, this is the beauty, I think, guys, of studying the Bible and its way that it's meant to be read. And seeing it as story and then finding in the midst of that story its meaning. And then taking that meaning and responding to it. So may we as a people of God continually respond well to the word of God. Thank you so much. This was, this was narrative, Bible, hermeneutics, all of that. It's a great month. I appreciate all of you guys being here. Uh, next month starts the Theology of the Table. Um, it's going to be baller. Um, if you're a meal group leader, I'm going to tell you all about it because I want you all to come. Um, yeah, that's all. I'll answer questions offline after this because the, the, the class has to come in. So thanks, guys.